Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And in this episode, we're looking at the disaster before D-Day exercise tiger how do you prepare for something as massive and monumental as d-day well you need to make sure your individual units are ready that your mortarmen know how far to fire and how to use their equipment that you can land on the beaches and that your ships can not only coordinate out into the channel but could coordinate around each other as well and then you need to bring them all together into one massive operation one of these was exercise tiger and to say that it ended disastrously would be one hell of an understatement i won't give away all the details but it's staggering when you realize that more people were killed in the rehearsal for the landing at utah beach than were actually killed landing at utah beach to take us through this we have dr harry bennett from the university of plymouth harry has gone through the files in the u.s and the uk he's interviewed those who took part in the exercise he has everything that you need to know to dispel the myths around this operation so here he is dr harry bennett on the disasters before d-day Hi, Harry. Welcome back to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing good and hope all your listeners are doing equally as well. Well, it's almost summer. Is it almost the end of term there in Plymouth? No, we continue forever. We carry on all the time <laughs> with our quest to go boldly and uh, drive back the frontiers of knowledge. Wow, I'm inspired. Good stuff. Now, tell me, Harry, we're approaching D-Day, the anniversary, June 6th, the Normandy landings. But one thing that we often forget is just how much planning and practice went into this in the weeks and months beforehand. And I know that some of this took place not a million miles away from you at Slapton Sands. So what happened there 77 years ago? Well, in a way, you've got to see this in the wider context, not of actually weeks or months, but in fact years, with the Bolero planning for D-Day. I mean, literally from 1942 onwards, they're planning for an invasion of Western Europe, and that takes an awful long time. And it also takes a significant amount of time both to create the circumstances, the vehicles, the landing craft, to train the troops, but also to train them. 
And Devon becomes home to two important training centres for the United States Army Stroke Navy. In the north, we have a thing called the Assault Training Centre. It's there that they begin to practice the kind of assault techniques that they're going to use to try and crack the Atlantic Wall on D-Day. So in other words, you've got mortar rangers, you've got flamethrower rangers, you've got big beaches, which people can practice combined operations and amphibious landings under fire. You've got pillboxes, which are mocked up. But then the question is, you know, as you begin to put small units through these training programs, you've got to build up to the big day. You need a big canvas, which is why in 1943, the Americans take over a region of South Devon called the South Hams. Now, this is a very rural part of the world. Big beaches. Yeah, no problem at all. Very, very rural, quite remote. Now, the Americans choose this partly because it is so remote. In other words, there aren't so many prying eyes. And indeed, they're going to evacuate most of the villages from both the training area and the immediate vicinity around it to keep things fairly private because here they're going to bring together sea, air, land to practice the amphibious landings that they're going to put into practice on D-Day. So this big training area at Slapton becomes home to a series of amphibious operations as they build in late 1943, early 1944 towards what they hope will be a kind of orchestrated symphony of violence which is what's going to take place on d-day so they've got to get it right they've got to train they've got to practice and in devon becomes for the united states military one of their principal training centers and so tell us a little bit about the geography around here what does slapton sands look like is it a kind of almost direct mock-up of the normandy beaches are they identical or similar in a lot of ways, no, but in some ways, yes. In other words, you've got an expansive beach. You've got a nice approach into the beach. You've got deep water. Interestingly, immediately behind the beach at Slapton, you've got an area of fresh water called Slapton Lay. It's basically a large lake. Now, there's some talk that with the area behind Utah Beach having been flooded deliberately by the Germans to create an inundation, that actually the idea of a beach behind which is this large piece of water that you've got to get round, it creates some interesting tactical problems that you need to engage with, that actually in some ways there were some similarities between Slapton and what you'd expect to find on Utah Beach. But I think generally speaking, the fact that it was a remote area, you could clear it of people, there was a decent beach there and some decent off-water anchorages, that was its principal attractions rather than the kind of lie of the land immediately behind it. And of course, in terms of the maritime conditions, I assume they're relatively similar. I mean, it's bloody choppy in the channel, isn't it? It is choppy in the channel in terms of actually landing. Quite different in a lot of respects. To land on Utah Beach, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place. It's a gently sloping beach. You've got lots of sand. You've got dunes behind. Slapton is a bit more hairy in terms of actually an amphibious operation. But as it were, you know, the conditions being the conditions and nothing's ever going to be ideal. It's a pretty good option, a pretty good comparison that they can utilise for the purposes of training. So tell us, and they've been practising as 
individual units, doing the mortars, doing bits of landings, doing practice of what it would be like to go through urban environments as well. And they're going to bring all of this together. When does this come together as a crescendo? And who's in charge? Well, the, who's in charge is kind of one of the interesting debates. Because one of the problems in terms of the kind of joint Anglo-American command is its jointness. There is nobody in sort of overall charge. So as it were, these landings are going to take place under the Plymouth Command, headed by Admiral Ralph Leatham. But under him, you've got various American officers who are in charge of particular aspects. So there is an issue of coordination. Now, they build towards Exercise Tiger, which is going to take place from the 22nd to the 30th of April. Now, this is when Force U, the force that's going to land on Utah Beach, is going to do its stuff. This is really going to be one of the last big dress rehearsals. This is the point when it should be all singing, all dancing. Everything's working, even down to the kind of subsequent landings where you're going to get the reserve troops, the truck companies, the ordnance companies, even the graves registration units are going to be coming ashore to practice what they've got to do following D-Day. So you're dealing with an exercise here, which is going to involve literally more than 200 ships. You're going to have aircraft involved. And you're going to have tens of thousands of troops involved. Now, the organisation of that, you can imagine, is massive. Not only do they have to get it right on D-Day, but they've also got to get it right in terms of these practice landings. And of course, the coordination of all of this is going to be a massive job at a point when you've still got people arriving in the command area. People are still working up towards what they hope will be success on D-Day. Even the facilities which are going to be required on D-Day and afterwards, even some of those are not wholly complete in terms of command and communications and control. So in other words, things are a little bit chaotic, to put it mildly. But as it were, you know, their window of opportunity in the summer of 1944 is fast approaching. They can't afford to say, especially in the circumstances of a Joseph Stalin, is saying, where is your second front? I don't recognise your bomber offensive. What's going on in Italy? I don't really rate that either. In terms of the politics of the war, this amphibious landing has been years in the preparation. And if it doesn't happen in 1944 in the summer of, when's it ever going to happen? So as it were, the pressure is on to carry out the big rehearsals in order to get success on D-Day, which has got to be in the summer of 1944. Did everybody know that this was an exercise? Did the soldiers know down to the minute what it is they were meant to be practising and doing? Yes and no. The commanding officers, the senior officers do. In other words, you have a very, very detailed operational order. Literally, you are trying to coordinate the movement of hundreds of vehicles, thousands of troops, hundreds of ships. So you've got everything that's got to be planned from getting these people from the camps that they're in, in places like Cornwall and Devon, to the ports, to load them, to depart at the right time, to move in literally a kind of synchronised ballet around the sea lanes before they actually come into Slapton Sands to actually land. It's a massive operation. And of course, this isn't happening in peacetime. This is happening in a combat environment. The risks are enormous. The risks 
simply are inevitable. So as it were, the seniors know they've got a very, very detailed plan and they hope it's going to go according to practice. Now, the people at the bottom of the food chain, the ordinary rankers, they don't know. In other words, what they want is to be given a kind of sense of this could be it. Here we're going. This is probably an exercise, but you never know. So as it were, while the people at the top know the details, the people at the bottom really don't. But like you say, this isn't peacetime. And it's not exactly like the waters that they're moving 200, 300 ships through and thousands of men through are, um, well, peaceful waters. Isn't this going to cause quite a lot of attention? Well, it's inevitable. And this is one of the interesting things about Exercise Tiger. There's something that Eisenhower says in his post-war report on the operations in Europe which almost suggests that one of the things that they're actually trying to factor into the operations, the principal purpose is to expose soldiers and sailors and airmen to the realities, some of the realities of what the landings are going to be like. But Eisenhower's report does suggest, I think, that there was an intelligence aspect to the operation. And what I think that intelligence aspect was, we want to see if we start putting large convoys of ships in the English Channel, at what point do the Germans become aware of them, how long does it take them to react, and how do they react? So in other words, there's almost a kind of double-edged purpose to this. The primary purpose is training, but as it were, if we can learn something about German reactions, how long it takes to get us on radar, when they see what they see, how do they respond and how long does it take them? That might be very useful intelligence to have. Now, the Allies hope, and indeed I think, that they're in a position to respond effectively to any thrust that the Germans make against the rehearsal operations taking place under Exercise Tiger in Lime Bay. In other words, they have some fairly strong naval forces at operation. So in other words, they have forces stationed off Cherbourg. Cherbourg is the home to the 5th and 9th German S-boat flotillas, what the British and the Americans largely label them E-boats, E for enemy boats, but the Germans call them S, S for Schnell boat, fast, big, very well-armed motor torpedo boats, almost like mini destroyers rather than the kind of torpedo boat that we might imagine. So they're literally just outside the port, they're waiting, and then they've got forces in mid-channel. So in other words, if they get past that layer, we've got another layer waiting. And then with the convoys, they've also got close in protection to give them a further layer. So they've got three layers of naval protection, as it were. So they hope that if the Germans detect them, they learn something in the process. And if they do come out, well, if we happen to catch them, we might annihilate that threat before D-Day, and that might itself be quite a good thing in any case. So as it were, they're quite hopeful that they've got the bases covered, if we can use that kind of American phrase. So there's a little bit of probing and poking going on here, maybe with a hope that they could annihilate some of the threats before D-Day. How does it play out? Well, it doesn't go so well. And it doesn't go so well in some interesting ways. So what we have is... In the early hours of the 28th of April, we have an attack on what they call the T4 convoy, T for training. The convoys that are taking part in Exercise Tiger, the landings on Slapton, they're all given a series of these code numbers. So this is just one of a series. Now, that night, 27th, 28th of April, at sea, 
in Lime Bay or at anchor in the same vicinity, there are something like 200 Allied vessels. Now you just think about that for one minute. 200 Allied vessels. Now these convoys are rotating around Lime Bay, almost like it's a kind of giant traffic island for the purposes of you know, navigating at night, working together, following what the escort actually wants, going along some fairly precise navigational lines so that they can work their way through the gaps in minefields to come to the beach at the appropriate hour to discharge their cargoes of personnel and vehicles. It's a massive great battle, but 200 vehicles. Now, on the night of the 27th, 28th, this convoy T4 is attacked. It is eight tank landing ships, eight LSTs. Now, two of those tank landing ships are sunk by torpedo. A third is badly damaged, but she ultimately manages to limp away into Dartmouth. So out of a convoy of eight LSTs, two are sunk, a third is badly damaged. The official death toll is subsequently put at 749 soldiers and sailors. Now, that is not an inconsiderable number in anybody's calculation. We've got to imagine always that sort of we have a different culture of loss in the 21st century than, say, a general or an admiral would have in April 1944. But even that, it, it's quite a number. So we have a critical loss which has taken place. Now, there have been many sort of theories as to, you know, why this happened and what happened and whose fault was it. And very clearly, a number of things went badly wrong that night. There was a breakdown in communications between the British and the Americans. Effectively, the British, who are controlling the sort of naval defences, actually find themselves, in terms of the radar plot, overloaded by the fact that we have nine motor torpedo boats that come out of Cherbourg. Instead of barrelling directly towards the English coast, they head westward, out towards the Channel Islands, before they then begin to track upwards. So they avoid the what might be described as the close blockade. Halfway across the English Channel, those nine S-boats break up into four groups. Three groups of two and one group of three. And they then begin to prospect the whole of Lime Bay from one end to the other. And there are some very, very interesting engagements that take place. So, for example, two S-boats manage to make absolutely no contact with anything and simply return home. Two other S-boats off Portland encounter part of the destroyer screen, which is there to sort of protect Lime Bay. And they begin to move into a firing position and they fire off their torpedoes and they actually think they've got a hit. They think they've got a hit. There's a large explosion. They see what they think is a torpedo hit and they see a destroyer which seems to disappear. Now, what's actually happened because we've got the English record of what took place, is yes, torpedoes were fired, and one of them seems to have exploded in the wake of one of the destroyers that was patrolling off Portland. So close was it to a hit that part of the casing for the torpedo actually fetched up on the deck of the destroyer 
by the funnel. Now, that's about as close a hit as you can possibly get without actually striking. And then, you know, they're busy searching for these German S-boats. So they clearly disappeared from view. And these two S-boats decide, you know, we've fired off the torpedoes. We've done the job. We're going home because these are hit and run tactics. They know that if they are still at work on the sea as dawn breaks, fighter aircraft are going to come out of the sky and they're going to be raining hell in their direction. That's without the destroyers actually coming looking for them, which is another thing that they're thinking about. Two other S-boats, S-114, S-142, they press deeper on into Lime Bay. And sure enough, they encounter a group of invasion craft. And they begin to fire off torpedoes. And then they get absolutely mystified in that they're firing these torpedoes off and there's no result. And so mystified are they that they actually come together in mid-channel. So what's going on? And at that point, there appears to be a conversation and a realisation that what they're shooting at are not actually landing ships. They're shooting at landing barges, part of a convoy, which is behind the T4 convoy, which is composed of landing barges, which are so shallow draft because they're meant to be landed on the beach that the torpedoes are simply passing underneath. And as they're in the middle of this conversation, they then begin to see further to the east what looks to be the silhouettes of larger vessels. Now, by this stage, they fired off all the torpedoes, but they go off in pursuit. And when they realize that, hey, we're dealing with a larger target here, they then begin to open up with their machine guns. Their purpose is not to try and sink these tank landing ships. It's just not going to happen. But their goal is to alert the last group of S-boats, the group of three which do have torpedoes on, and they're going to guide them to the target using tracer fire. So about 1.30, they are opening fire on this T4 convoy. And of course, general quarter sounds, all hell is broken loose, you name it. And if you look at the logs of ships all the way across Lime Bay, you can see them noting, you know, hey, we're seeing tracer fire in the air. We're seeing star shell. What's going on? Some of them conclude it's just part of the exercise. It's just, you know, a way of toughening us up. But the guys are on the tank landing ships on T4. They're very, very well aware. Now, sometime after 1.30, after fire has been opened, S-140 and S-142, torpedoes exhausted, know that by this stage, the three remaining S-boats will have seen their tracer fire, will know what they're shooting at, and they decide, right, our job's done. Our job now is to get back to Sherbrooke, and they leave the scene which then leaves the three S-boats, which have still got torpedoes, to come into the attack. And it's their torpedoes that do the job of sinking two of those tank landing ships and badly damaging a third. They stick around for a little while, so the action is really taking place. S-140 and S-142, they open fire at about 1.30. By just after two o'clock, the first torpedo is on its way towards the tank landing ships from the three remaining S-boats. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? 
How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. So we end up with this substantial loss of life. The remaining landing ships, they turn away from the source of the danger. The S-boats are cutting in between them. They're firing at them with cannon fire. There's torpedoes which are being near missed in terms of the tank landing ships and they basically put their sterns towards the danger and basically head inland they're trying to get deeper into line bay to try and get away from a scene of devastation as you've got two tank landing ships which are now blazing and the whole area is being lit up and really by about 2:30, you've got this sense that the germans think okay our business here is largely done and they're going to depart the scene because the whole area is now being lit up. There are destroyers coming at them from Portsmouth, support groups being sent from Portsmouth, from Plymouth, and indeed there are forces closing in on them. At the same time, they realise aircraft are probably on their way and they're after us too. So their job is to get south and get away from the scene of the action. One of the tank landing ships, ultimately, when it realises that the Germans have gone, LST-515, the senior officer actually turns the ship around and brings it back to the sinking site and begins to rescue guys from the water, even though this wasn't really against regulations. This was not supposed to happen. So he basically breaks orders and turns around and begins to rescue people from the water. But by this stage in the water, you have literally hundreds of men, many of whom have succumbed to hypothermia. These tank landing ships, when they've gone up, 
They're carrying ammunition. They're carrying fuel. They're blazing like Roman candles. And you can imagine what that's actually done to some of the casualties who've been forced to jump over the side. So the LST-515 finds a scene of absolute devastation when it returns to the sinking site. And, you know, I've spoken to some of the people who actually went through that process of, you know, one guy, and I won't give his name for obvious reasons, you know, he told me he hadn't thought about these memories for literally decades, but he was able to tell me literally as we sat having a cup of coffee at Slapton what it was like being in the water following the sinking of his ship and this sense of, you know, my fingers are getting cold. My feet are getting cold. All around me are my friends and it's starting to go quiet. They're starting to go quiet, and I'm kind of very, very aware of being very cold in a very big sea under a very big sky, and eventually he loses consciousness until actually he wakes up. He literally wakes up in a pile of bodies on board LST-515. They thought that he'd actually gone, but, you know, fortunately he hadn't. So this is a scene of absolute horror. And from there, LST-515 with a cargo of casualties on board the dead the dying the seriously injured gonna make her way round as quickly as she can to portland while those s boats are fleeing to the south but this isn't quite the end of our story this is where it gets kind of something even bigger could have taken place that night a few months ago i was contacted by a chap whose father had been on lsts in the European theatre during the Second World War. And he said, hey, my, I think my dad knew something about Exercise Tiger. And over the years, historians like me have heard a lot of, well, great uncle so-and-so knew something. And he said, well, what did uncle so-and-so know? And said, like, well, he never really said, and now he's gone, so we can't find out. But this guy actually said, you know, my dad's unfortunately gone. My father's passed away. But I do have the log. I do have the log for his LST. So it's like, okay, that's kind of interesting. And when I began to plot his father's ship's movement, his father's LST had been at sea that night and had passed to the south of the sinking shortly after the T-4 convoy had been attacked. So naturally, I begin to get, you know, this is quite fascinating. And working with him, working with him, we were able to piece together what had happened that night against an even bigger canvas. In that that night, in addition to the hundreds of ships roaming around Lime Bay, you've got elements of Force O for Omaha Beach, which are also at sea that night making a move towards Portland. Now, this guy's father's ship, LST-51, was also part of a convoy of LSTs, which were proceeding round from Falmouth to Portland carrying equipment for use on Omaha Beach. Now, they are being routed much deeper into the channel to make their transit because so busy is Lime Bay. So quite literally, as the action is beginning to take place in Lime Bay, this guy's father's convoy is rounding start point and coming into the mid-channel. And literally, it passes to the south of where the T-4 convoy had taken place and using the ship's logs of that convoy what we see is that the three german s-boats which had hit the t4 convoy who are now making their escape to the south with destroyers coming at them from east and west 
suddenly finds itself confronted with another LST convoy. This time, what they call the obstacle convoy. This was the code name given to it, and it appears on radar logs. And all hell absolutely breaks loose, because just as it sights the obstacle convoy, two O-class destroyers also come onto the scene and begin shooting. Now, seemingly, they didn't know anything about the obstacle convoy coming round from Falmouth, because their job is exercise Tiger Force U. So they begin to fire at the Germans, and their fire is actually going over the LSTs of the obstacle convoy. And the Germans are watching this and thinking, oh, my God, you know, this is kind of like apocalyptic in terms of the British seem to be blazing away at absolutely everything. And when one of the American escorts realizes they're in danger of being shot up, recognition lights are put on. The Royal Navy destroyers cease their fire and the S-boats slip between the ships of the obstacle convoy and away to Cherbourg and to breakfast and safety. So in other words, that night, something even bigger could have happened. Now, I don't know. The information isn't clear whether or not that group of German S-boats having shot up the T-4 convoy had actually got torpedoes on board, which they could, if the Royal Navy hadn't have turned up, have said, hang on a minute, we can have a second helping here. So instead of actually maybe 749 lives lost, Instead of two LSTs destroyed and one critically damaged, you might have had an even bigger casualty list that night with potentially quite far-reaching effects in terms of the impact on Allied morale and Allied thought in terms of the forthcoming invasion. So the T4 convoy events are fairly well known, but the second convoy, what we call the obstacle convoy, has literally only come to light in the past few months as a result of somebody saying, Dad knew something about Exercise Tiger, and here's the log, and it's the logs of that convoy. LSTs plus patrol craft, when you correlate them with the British logs and the German logs, suddenly it all makes sense. So that what we might describe as the tragedy of Exercise Tiger becomes a sea-air battle raging across the English Channel, involving hundreds of ships, taking place over two or three hours. And as one YouTuber commented, you know, really, we should be calling this the Battle of Lime Bay. And I think that is a, a more apt description. With so much chaos, mayhem and confusion going on at this point, surely Exercise Tiger is then brought to an end and ships return back. Yeah, I mean, that's effectively it. You've literally got a foreshortening of the exercise. They're going to try and very quickly recover from the situation that they're in. So the exercise comes to an end. They've got to begin to calculate what's gone on and especially the kind of potential intelligence impacts. Now, what they're particularly worried about is, did the Germans actually hang around to fish anybody out of the water who they might subsequently have interrogated? Now, there are individuals on those LSTs that go down that know at least part of the D-Day story. So they're very, very concerned about what the Germans might gain from the interrogation. But actually, by this stage, the German way of operating is simply hit and run. So they're not going to hang around and fish people out of the water. So fortunately, that one kind of passes away in terms of, OK, we probably don't need to think about that. 
They're also trying to learn all the lessons about, well, we had some pretty big failures here, folks. How do we learn the lessons of that? And then there's also the issue as well, because most of the kind of work of those people who've looked at Exercise Tiger is focused on allied failings. But the Americans and British are also sort of thinking, hang on a minute, credit where credit's due. You know, the Germans have struck us quite an important blow here. Now, the Americans in particular are thinking, why if that happens on D-Day? What if instead of LSTs, they hit a troop ship? Instead of having a few hundred casualties, we have these things coming at us, literally trying to overwhelm our defences, the equivalent of sort of <laughs> analogue swarm attacks by drones almost. What's going to happen? So the Americans in particular are really quite worried by this. And indeed, the American historian James Foster Tent has documented very ably that the Americans are so rattled by this that at one point they come up with this scheme that they push to the British. We've got to take these S-boats out before D-Day. These things could imperil D-Day. The American plan is we're going to use the old battleship Nevada and we're basically going to head it towards Cherbourg before D-Day and we're going to let us sit off the coast and try and bomb hell out of the bunker in which these S-boats are parked and protected so that that threat is neutralised. Now, the British, in effect, turn around in absolute horror and say, if you do that, you might as well send the Fuhrer a telegram to say, we're coming, here we are. It's such a big giveaway about what's going to take place. So that, you know, Bertram Ramsey, he's one of the ones who's instrumental as a sort of head of the D-Day landings in actually saying to the Americans, look, what's happened with Tiger is terrible. We think we've got the countermeasures. We think we can protect and nullify that threat on D-Day. And ultimately, the British have proved correct. But the Americans in particular are very, very sensitized by this S-boat threat. And I do wonder the extent to which American naval forces arriving in the European theatre were really aware of just how deadly these S-boats were. I mean, I well remember speaking to a couple of gunners who had been part of the T-4 convoy, who on seeing S-130, the last surviving German schnellboat of the Second World War, which took part in the attack on the T-4 convoy, and she's now being restored in Britain, on seeing, you know, this boat for the first time, their eyes go wide. And it's like, my God, is that what was haunting us that night? They had no idea of the size, the speed and the firepower of what was coming at them. And, you know, to talk to a couple of these gunners, they were just amazed at the threat that was facing them. Even though they were on, you know, 40 millimetre guns, which would have been quite capable of actually dealing an S-boat a hell of a lot of damage, they were really quite shocked that what was coming at them that night was as deadly as it was. So I just wonder the extent to which the Americans were, you know, keyed in on the U-boat threat, sure. But the idea that the Germans have got these, like, fast motor torpedo boats that are pretty deadly... Whether or not they were sufficiently alive to that threat, I think, is an interesting one. Yeah, it's an interesting aspect to consider the intelligence gaps or intelligence failures that are there. But it also kind of makes us reconsider the extent to which the Germans were defeated at that point. It's so easy as historians or those who love history to look back and think the D-Day landings were a given. It was always going to be making our way off the beaches 
and inland and victory was assured. But the Germans most definitely still had some fight left in them. Well, you think about the damage that, you know, those nine motor torpedo boats were able to affect. You also think about the extent of German mine warfare as well. This is one of the things that really doesn't come through into the narrative of, well, popular narratives of D-Day. The trouble that the British and the Americans had off the Normandy coast with the kind of oyster mine, the acoustic mines and others that the Germans put in the water following D-Day was massive. The British and Americans were losing ships. They were having ships damaged. So you begin to put together a scenario where actually the Kriegsmarine and the Luftwaffe could have done a rather better job on D-Day. You know, if the mines had been in the right place at the right time, if they'd have had enough of these motor torpedo boats to actually begin to try and swamp Allied defences, if they'd been willing to press the attack to almost suicidal range and actually say, you know, look, this is it. This is the war for us, in a sense. This is the day of decision. Then maybe the German army would have had an even better chance of stopping the invasion at the water's edge on the 6th of June 1944. You know, you think about how close run things were on Omaha Beach. You don't need too many lucky torpedo shots to actually then begin to sort of turn the balance even more firmly, perhaps, towards the German side. Well, Harry, I think that that is a good point to draw this to a close. You've given us some food for thought there as we approach D-Day, and we're going to have a series of episodes through the week that take us through those events, and this will most certainly be in our mind about what could have happened and what did happen during Exercise Tiger. Where can people read more about this? <laughs> That's kind of an interesting one. I mean, there's a lot of works out there. There's a lot of works out there. They're quite variable in their nature. Some of them go down the conspiracy theory lines. And Exercise Tiger has literally become its own publishing industry. I mean, the number of documentaries which have appeared on Exercise Tiger is something else. So uh, I won't give any specific recommendations. I will simply say that uh, viewer and reader discretion is required because, as it were, this topic has achieved something of a life of its own. People want to emote about the subject, and it is an emotional subject, but, as it were, there are some proper approaches from an historical point of view to take towards this incident to actually really begin to learn its lessons and to do justice to those individuals who lost their lives in late April 1944. We must never forget, these people died in action against the enemy. You know, it was a training exercise, but ultimately they died in action against the enemy. So uh, the one thing I would say is, if you're passing, do come down to South Devon and look at the Slapton Sands training area and go up to North Devon and look at the old assault training centre. They're really quite fascinating areas steeped in history. Well, that sounds like it's one for the list this summer. Thank you so much, Harry. You know you're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.